All right, all right, guys. Very, very happy Thursday, and uh, can't wait to have my next guest, James Taylor, uh, on the Robert Show today. Uh, James is the founder and CEO of Decision Management Solutions and a faculty member of the International Institute for Analytics. He's a leader, expert leader in digital decisioning and using advanced analytics, business rules, uh, machine learning, and AI to improve business results. Obviously, I was talking uh, backstage to James about uh, some business rules and uh, decision making. Uh, I'm quite excited for the session today and can't wait to have him uh, on air. Also, uh, uh, a little more about James. Obviously, he's the author of G Digital Decisioning Using uh, Decision Management to uh, Deliver Business Impact from AI, as well as multiple other books uh, and articles on decision management, decision modeling, predictive analytics, and business rules. Uh, today, we will discuss about his journey about uh, using digital decisioning to succeed in AI and ML. Uh, also, my favorite one, the Mayflower Autonomous Shape, uh, Critical Success Factors, and much more. So, uh, if you wish to, also we are giving away two uh, books of digital decisioning. Uh, so, don't forget to mention James' book in the comment. I'll quickly before getting on James, let me quickly share what you need to type in the chat. It's James book that you need to type in the comment section and you will be up for the raffle and we'll announce the winners by end of the show. So you can stay back and please feel free to ask questions to James. Okay. Without any further ado, let's have James here. Hey James, welcome to the Robert show. How are you? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. Nice to, nice to be on. Good morning, Fantastic. good evening, hello, whatever time zone people are in. So. Fantastic. I just mentioned about your book, uh, Digital Decisioning. I'm very happy. I uh, I obviously got it some time back and I was lucky enough and to get it uh, signed by you. And I did go through the book and trust me, it's one of the best books I've read because uh, it did mention about uh, business impact from AI, about the uh, like we discussed about the digital decisioning before the session, before the models actually go out and being deployed. So, but yeah, we'll talk a lot uh, more about it uh, in the session today. To start with, can you please introduce yourself, James? Sure. So I'm James Taylor. I run Decision Management Solutions. Uh, we're a consulting firm specializing in digital decisioning. That's what we do. We help large companies typically adopt these kind of technologies and use them to get to get business value. I've been running the company since uh, 2009. Uh, before that, I worked at Verizon, FICO, and in various other sort of software-oriented roles uh, in the US. And as you can probably tell from the messages of my accent, uh, I grew up in the UK. So I've uh, been living in uh, citizen in the US for 30 years or so now, uh, but I still have the remains of an English accent. I still understand the rules of cricket. That's I live in Palo Alto, California, which at the moment is neither on fire nor too hot, um, both of which are subject to change without notice. Um, and uh, yeah, that's about it. I have a, I have a delightful granddaughter. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, obviously, uh, it takes a lot of courage, you know, when you started your brand, it was quite new and digital decisioning and decision management actually solutions were quite new back then. So can you tell us about your early days? How did you start and how did you come up with an idea to start your own brand? Sure. So uh, when I was at FICO, Fair uh, Isaac, yeah, obviously builds a lot of these kinds of systems for banks, right? And so 
you know, part of the journey was to realize that, that all these different systems, fraud detection systems, account management systems, origination systems, clients, they were all really the same kind of system. They were all doing the same kinds of things, the same kind of way. And they give them a name, call them you know, decision management, digital decisioning. These are the words we started to say, hey, look, this is a category. Um, when I wrote my first book, Smart Enough Systems with Neil Raiden in 2007, and um, there was an opportunity then to sort of, uh, you know, go out and sort of uh, <coughs> promulgate some of these ideas with Neil as independent analysts. And we started working primarily with software vendors, helping them understand how this positioning worked. And it turned out there were a whole bunch who had seen how fair Isaac was talking about this, and we're like, oh, that's a really good way to talk about this. Um, and as soon as you know, it was possible to have people who were outside of another company talk about it, they were they were keen to adopt it. So we started seeing more adoption. Um, we did that for a few years, and then and then I realized that what I really wanted to do was help companies adopt this stuff. That I didn't want to just tell software companies how to sell it or how to promote it. I really wanted to actually go work with real projects. You know, I'm a software guy by background. I really wanted to go out and help people build decisioning systems. And so we started Decision Management Solutions in 2009 um, and gradually transitioned it you know, from sort of advisory work for software companies to advisory work for end user companies and then ultimately for to implementation projects. And what we find now is it's a lot easier to persuade people of, of what these systems do if you can build an example for them. You know, it's quite a different uh, way of thinking about systems, quite a different approach. And so we, you know, we, we, now we help people build one. So for us, uh, for me at least, it, it was really you know, realizing this was a category, wanting to promote that category, and then realizing that, that while you can get a certain way, uh, a certain distance, persuading right. other software companies to adopt the same words, in the end, you have to go generate case studies, examples, ROI, things with real companies. And, and uh, so, yeah, hence the transition increasement. Yeah, very interesting journey. And what were the actual, you know, if if you were want to mention any scenarios where uh, you actually uh, felt that these were, uh, you know, the initial hurdles that I faced when I start, obviously, uh, when mm -hmm. I go, you stepped into decision management, what are those hurdles would you want to share with our audience? So, I mean, there's a couple, right? I mean, running your own company is an interesting experience, right? And, and exactly. uh, fortunately, I got I got some help early on and, and uh, you know, my, my partner stepped in and stopped me having a heart attack. So I didn't have a heart attack. Um, <laughs> yeah, because there's just an enormous number of things to do. Uh, and the hardest thing is getting from, uh, well, actually, the hardest thing is learning to ask for money. Right? Because at the end of the day, you have to say it's going to cost you X, whatever X is, and and, and then just wait, right? And uh, I have any number of colleagues who try to start their own business and realize they just actually can't ask for money. <laughs> so <laughs> so you have to be able to ask for money. That's the first tip. Um, the second thing is is that, that there's an enormous number of things to do, and and getting to the point where you start having people whose job it is to do them, right, takes a while, right? And so to begin with, you have to just be really good at keeping track of a whole bunch of you know, very small things, right? You know, I, you know, I have a to-do manager. It regularly has a thousand items, in it, right? Because it's just most of which recur. Every year you got to do this. Every month you got to do that. Every week you got to do this other thing, right? And you just can't forget them because there's no company infrastructure. So the transition to having that company infrastructure, having other people who worry if the website's up, and yeah, you know, <laughs> if the email system's working, and shit like that. Uh, is a, is a journey, right? It takes a little while. So that's from that point of view, that's, um, that's been, uh, that's been an interesting, the, the, 
the other thing I guess is that if people think that writing a book is a great way to either make money or generate leads, I have bad news for them. Right? Um, you, you, know, you don't make very much money writing books unless, unless you write unless you're very very popular. Um, and uh, and secondly, the, the the lead cycle on people who read your book and then call you up to hire you as a consultant is remarkably long. I think our record at the moment is eleven years, which is not a terribly swift sales cycle. Now, on the plus side, it's a relatively cheap sales cycle. You write the book, he buys the book. Eleven years later, he comes out and hires you as a consultant, right? But, but eleven years is rather a long time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that transition to sort of thinking about not just how do you respond to questions, but how do you start getting people who've never heard of these things to start mm -hmm. calling up and saying, "That sounds like what I need," right? Um, one of our colleagues has a phrase. He says, "Yeah, people have to go spend thirty days and thirty nights in the wilderness, and then they call." They try everything else first, right? You know, and then, then they call up and say, okay, so maybe you were right. Maybe I can't just use machine learning the way I thought I could. Maybe I have to try a little harder. Tell me again what it was you thought I should do, right? You know, but try to sort of short circuit that. That's where the Mayfire comes in because it's a great example, right? It's a way of showing people something. Yeah, exactly. No, I can only imagine. So, uh, James, quick question How many books have you written till date? Well, the answer to that question is either like five or one. Depending on how you count, really, it's the same book written again and again. So, Smart Assistance was the first one. Um, I've written uh, sec big sections of books around um, decision modeling, decision modeling for other people. So, a book on BPM, uh, a couple mm -hmm. of books on business rules, a couple of books on uh, BPMN and BMN and modeling standards, where I've written big chunks. Uh, I wrote um, uh, with Jan Purchase, I wrote uh, Real World Decision Modeling, that's the other sort of wow. current book. Um, and then obviously digital decisioning is the is the sort of yeah the third edition essentially of smart systems in many ways. So it's, yeah, we wrote it for IBM Press called Decision Management Systems. Uh, and then, yeah, this one. But each, each one is shorter and more business focused. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, what I find is I have to explain the technology less these days. When I first started writing these books, I had to explain what a predictive analytic was. Yeah, what machine learning meant. Yeah, <laughs> um, and, and now mo and, yeah, what SOA stood for. And now most of you don't have to explain those things, even to business readers, right? They, they, they have a much higher level of technological savvy. So. so it's a lot. I mean, you know, I, I write a lot. Um, there's a, you know, the thing about writing a book, Rabbit, is you discover, I don't know if you've written one, but there's a lot of words in a book. Um, and you don't really appreciate just how many words there are in a book until you write one. And it's not the writing them, it's the number of times you have to read them. You have to yeah. write them, you have to edit them, then you get copy edits, and you have to read those, and you get structure edits, you have to read those, and you get it laid out in a galley copy, and you have to read it again. And by the time it's actually published, you're like, I never want to see this goddamn book again. You know, <laughs> so, you know, and then, then you get it translated. You get versions in languages you can't read, which is very um, interesting. You know, smart enough systems is in Russian, the digital decision is in Japanese, and you get yeah. these books, and you know what they say, but you can't read them. And that's exactly. a slightly disconcerting experience. Oh, I can only imagine how difficult it is to write a book. I can only imagine, and I'm happy there. So, okay, uh, that those were nice uh, tips about writing book, or maybe not writing book. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously, having a book is always um, a, a, a huge thing, and I know how much uh, it takes to write a book. Uh, so, thanks for that, James. We have a few folks joining in. We have Shruti Jain joining in. We have Aditi Kinvalsra joining in. Uh, I'm just checking where are people joining in from. Okay, 
James Book, yes, hashtag book is something that you need to put. You're from Portugal. Hello, Nelson. So everyone's joining in. So more about, uh, okay, we have a few questions as well. We have Mike here. Hello, Mike. Uh, Mike is to be okay. Cool. So, uh, yeah, quick question about, uh, obviously, you are an author of Digital Decisioning, uh, and also uh, you have written so many books, articles related to digital decisioning. Based on your experience, uh, James, what do you think was the most difficult thing about writing a book? Obviously, those copy edits and going over it again and again is definitely uh, something which might be, right. you know, uh, it can take a lot of energy, but uh, at the same time, if you would say in terms of the content, what, what, you know, what was the most difficult thing that this should go through very well to the audience and they, sh they should understand why this, you know, decision management right. actually plays a very important role. So I think it's the, there's two ways to answer the question. From a, from a writer's point of view, the hardest thing was a technical book, where you're trying to write a book about technology but you're not trying to write it necessarily for technical people. It's not like I'm writing a book about like, you know, uh, Kubernetes for people who are deploying Kubernetes clusters, right? I'm not trying to write a super right. technical book, but I've got to describe a certain amount of technology. And and that balance is really hard to maintain. I'm not sure I always manage it. I'm trying to sort of, you have to explain technology enough that people who've never come across it before know what it does, exactly. but not get sucked into the details too much. So that balance is a, is a constant struggle when you're writing a, a business textbook like, like this one. In terms of the, the what I find the hardest thing for readers, though, is is the word decision. Because mm -hmm. people are so used to thinking of decisions as things humans do, right? That they have a hard time thinking of them as things businesses or technology do. They're like, well, I make decisions. I make decisions. I make decisions. I stretch my team. What metrics should be. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. That's, a certain, that's certainly a kind of decision. Exactly. But your business makes decisions like what marketing offer should we give Rabbit at the end of his checkout process? And uh, here's James's medical claim, should we pay it? Uh, mm -hmm. you know, or uh, you know, you know, I've got this extra pickup for this you know, that I have to schedule. Which route should I add it to? Exactly. And those decisions happen all day, every day. And, and you have to think about those two. And, and they getting people to sort of yeah, separate those sort of from each other and go, oh, okay, so you're not talking about how I think about running the business, you're talking about how the business like operates. Yeah, that, that I think is probably the thing that readers tell me is the sort of thing they have to get their head around. Yeah, I think in terms of the technical book, it's a different story altogether because you need to uh, you need to explain the technical aspects. But here, it's more about the mind game as well, where it's about the decision making, and obviously it differs from person to person. At the same time, it might uh, be uh, you know you have to have that generic mindset and then put it out to the audience. So it definitely makes a lot of sense. Also, uh, you are the CEO and a faculty member for the International Institute for Anatomy. Analytics. Uh, so you've been an instructor at various workshops and the University of California extension program too. So, uh, and obviously you are an author. So among these, what do you think uh, you love the most and why? So what I love the most actually is the beginning of projects with clients, right? I mean, I, I, both the, the end of the sales cycle and the beginning of the project, because what I'm doing is helping them conceptualize how they're going to use the approach. Mm -hmm. Right, they, they're mostly bought in. They've read books. They've done we've done presentations. We've shown demos. They're like, okay, I think this is going to work for us, but they're not necessarily sure where it's going to work or exactly how it's going to work. And trying to get them 
to step back from their data and from what they think analytics can do and from what their policies and regulations are supposed to follow are and, and start articulating how they decide. You know, and, and what we find is that it turns out if you ask people in the business world, how does the company decide this? No one's ever asked them before, and they're often really interested in, in trying to think through how, how, it, how it works, how it should work. And that, right. that early, watching that sort of blossoming is, is fascinating. Right? And as you ask people, well, why, what, what does that mean? Why, why do you need that? Okay, you say you need this piece of data. Why? What are you going to, what's it do? Oh, well, I need that piece of data because that tells me this. Ah, so you have to decide that. Well, yeah, I guess I do. And, you know, and you start to sort of see them uh, put the pieces together in a way that's really fascinating. And I enjoy that tremendously. Uh, yeah, and I'm not sure if that's part of the sales cycle or part of the project cycle, but that, that sort of right as it transitions from one to the other, when we start getting really concrete about what they're going to do, and, and you start to see, you go, oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> yeah, and one of the fun things is, yeah, we have a, an approach for this and a modeling approach and everything else, and it works across every industry. So me and the other modelers were regularly asked, well, how many times have you done this project or this kind of project? Or how much experience do you have in this industry? And we'll often go, none. And they're like, yeah. well, how come you just ask that really difficult question then? Well, because it follows from everything else. Yeah, I don't need to know what your industry is to know that that's the next question. It must be given the way decision-making works. <laughs> Um, exactly. uh, and that, that can be kind of fun, getting them to, to realize that, that there's, a, there's a standard way of doing something. Very true and very interesting. So uh, just uh, before I take a question from the audience, uh, I just mm -hmm. need to remind everyone, we are giving away two uh, copies of Digital Decisioning and we are talking about this book uh, to James. So what you just need to do is put in hashtag James book in the comment section and we will uh, you'll enter the raffle and we'll announce the winners by end of this show okay quick question from the audience that i wanted to pick ways around digital decisioning from manisha how has the pandemic changed the face of digital decisioning Interesting so question. yeah so the pandemic has really driven a lot of interest in it what we've noticed um obviously initially the pandemic shut everything down right no one did anything and what we noticed was a huge number of companies suddenly had to digitize their, their, their business processes and their content and data so that they could support a remote working uh, workforce. And so we watched them go through, you know, finding thousands more VPN connections for people and all the sort of basic logistics of this. And what they ended up at the end of this sort of first year was a recognition that while they had digitized a lot of this work, everything still had to flow through a person. Exactly. Yeah, um, as one of my colleagues puts it, they, they had taken the old manila folder that used to go around in, in, in the mail and digitized it, but it still flowed around in, you know, in email or on Slack or on the CRM system or whatever. Nothing else had really changed. And they weren't getting, while they had supported the pandemic, they weren't getting much of an ROI for all this investment. So mm -hmm. we have a number now where really the focus is on, okay, so uh, why do I still have a person in this process? all the time. I know I need it sometimes. But why do I always need it? And why can I give them so little help? Why is it that they just get this whole transaction on their desk without necessarily an explanation of why it's on their desk metaphorically? So we're seeing people starting to go, uh, digital decisioning is the sort of last piece, if you like, of their digital transformation. That they 
they digitize their workflow, they digitize their data and their content, but if they still rely on humans to make every single decision about every single transaction, well, then everything bogs down pretty pretty fast. So that's what it's driving. Um, it's driven more people to have the digital infrastructure that makes it clear why they need digital decisions. That's probably the best way to solve it. Very true. And that answers for Manisha, definitely. Yeah, right. Also, there was an interesting question from Mike Nash. Uh, is the lack of understanding confidence in technology a reason for companies not adopting digital decisions? I think so, a little. I mean, one of the things we noticed with, and it's starting to change as execs get younger, but older exec, business execs, yeah, if you watch a group of business execs and the, and the HR people bring a really complicated HR problem, they'll listen and they'll engage with it, even though they don't understand the HR law. If it's a facilities question, even though they don't understand the details of how buildings work, they'll listen and engage. But when the CIO comes and presents something, a lot of them will just go, oh, that's tech, I don't, I don't do tech. But they don't engage in the conversation. Um, and so I, I do think that's hard. I think it's changing. I think, you know, execs who are like under 40 um, grew up with a lot more tech in their lives. And so they're, they're a lot less, um, they may not understand the technical details any better, but they're a lot less, um, I don't want to say frightened, but they're more willing to engage in the discussion to assume that the, the common sense can be applied. Um, uh, so I think that, that's an issue. I, I also think that overconfidence in the technology is a problem. I think that the people who buy the technology, I think that they buy it and they use it, they'll be able to change the business. Mm -hmm. um, and the evidence is that they absolutely cannot. Um, only the business can change the business. Um, and so their belief that they can hire a bunch of data scientists, supply a bunch of automotive tools, and empower people to be citizen data scientists, and somehow suddenly their company is going to become this data-driven nirvana is, is a myth. Right? The, the, the only people who can really change the business are the people who run it. Um, and they don't understand how any of this stuff works, nor do they see how it can be applied. And often they're not even motivated to apply, right? And so um, I, I do think that the that, that disconnect is a real problem. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and I think we, we run a risk that confidence will become a problem. I think people are beginning to... Uh, you know, Gartner has that great hype cycle, right? Where, and we're beginning exactly. to hit a trough of disillusionment here with some of this tech because it's been totally oversold. Um, uh, not that it doesn't do what it, they said it did, but the businesses can't use it as easily as they were told they could. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I, I think it's more on the side where things need to be explored and then maybe the confidence kind of develops within time and most of the decisions are if it's a business decision obviously decision making plays a very important role and digital decisioning is one of the most important bit of there so uh, uh since we're talking about uh, digital decisioning what do you you know how how can digital decisioning be used as a mode uh, to succeed in ai and ml how how would you actually put it there Sure. So I think what we've noticed when we look at companies that are succeeding in machine learning and, and more advanced kinds of analytics is that the more advanced the analytic is, the more specific it tends to get. If you think about a predictive analytic but with machine learning, it's predicting a certain target variable with a certain degree of accuracy in a certain time frame. So you, you don't get just sort of like, oh, uh, how much demand is there? You get, okay, how many, how much demand of this kind do we expect in 90 days, uh, given a confidence interval of Y, right? Well, okay, that's a very specific prediction. 
And all predictions are like that. They're, they're very, very specific, right? Well, if you don't understand the business decision that you're trying to influence with the handler, it's very hard mm -hmm. to tell if you've built the right one or how you should use it. And so what we notice is as you, as you work your way up the analytic sophistication, you need to understand more and more of how your analytic is going to be used. If all I'm doing is giving you data in Excel, I don't need to know anything about what you do. Here's data in Excel, not just out, right? If I start building a you know, tabloid dashboard or a quick dashboard, well, now I have to I have to know a little bit more about what you're doing because I've got to think about what to put on the dashboard and how to present it and what kind of tools might make sense to you. Um, if I'm going to build a predictive analytic, I don't know exactly what you do. And so what we find is when, you know, that's the first thing. Right? The second thing we find is that in order to build these advanced analytics, you've got to be looking at high transaction volumes because you need a lot of data. So once you combine those two things, I've got to really understand the decision making so I can build the right analytic. And I've got to be a decision I make often because I need a lot of data. You start thinking, gosh, I'm going to have to automate this decision. So what we find is that companies that commit to automating the decision making first and then saying, how do I use analytics now to get better at this decision? Right? You know, I think is is uh, are much more likely to succeed. They, they have much more specific requirements for their analytic, and they have a deployment framework that's much more business oriented and less technical. Not here's a score, but here's a recommended action you should take because, right? And an explanation of why. Right? And so you see a lot of this in the explainable AI and yeah, you know, composite AI. All these different terms are being used to say you can't just say. Is a score. Right. Knock yourself out. You've got to. You've got to have a more integrated sort of thought process. And so I think digital decisioning for us has sort of there's a couple of things, right? First of all, it, it focuses on those decisions so that you understand what they are, so you can drive the right machine learning and AI into your infrastructure. And secondly, it puts that infrastructure in place in a way that means that as your machine learning and AI evolve, as you build new ones, you don't constantly have to change the systems and processes on the back end because you're still making the same decision. You're just making it more accurately. And so as far as the rest of your business is concerned, nothing's changed. It just got better, right? Well, you can encapsulate it like that. Well, now the machine learning team can produce a new model every week and yeah, and, and all that happens is the results get better, right? So, <laughs> so it, it's, you know, it, it's a, I often say it changes it from a push model. Here's analytics. You should use more of them to a pull model. <laughs> hey, I'm automating this decision. I would do better if you would tell me these predictions. Uh, so that's where actually predictive analytics play a very important role. Right. It does make sense. Okay, uh, since we're talking about analytics, there's a quick question from George Rickin. How have things changed in analytics since you've started your role? So I think there's a couple of things. I think, first of all, the general awareness of analytics has, has improved a lot. A lot more business users and, and, tech, and tech folks understand what predictive analytics means, what machine learning means, and so on. Uh, they're not always 100% accurate, but they understand it well enough to yeah, getting on with it. Um, there's a lot more people who can use some of the tools. And the tools are a lot more sophisticated. So you can, people who know what they're doing can get a lot more done, right? It's a lot less manually intensive, I think, than it used to be. Um, the other thing I would say, though, is that the, um, if you like, the fit and finish on some of that work has got worse. Um, uh, and a colleague of mine once said, he said, you know, the, the question is, as, as the number of people doing data science expands, will we learn the lessons that IT learned in the 70s and 80s about code by observation or only by experience? And so far, we're learning them by experience. And so you go to places and all the models are in notebooks that are on people's personal 
PCs or in personal directories. There's no source code control. There's no review process. There's no update cycle. No one remembers why the model is the way it was. It's just we put it into production. No one's checked the production versions to see if they're still working. You know, all the stuff that IT used to do badly, right? Um, and so, I, you know, I think that's changed too. <laughs> it used to be you had a small number of like craftspeople almost working on this. And they mostly took it pretty seriously. Now you have a lot more people working. The tools are a lot better. But there's also, I think, um, you know, uh, the, 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 we're just at the beginning of professionalizing that, uh, that, right. that thing. Right? And, and I think you're beginning to see more and more of this. You must see it in the books and, and the OD, ODSC exactly. work you do. A lot more talk about how do you integrate this with Git? How do you integrate this with IT? How do you work with IT? What does MLOps mean? Um, how do you make sure your pipelines stay up? How do you check an old model for bias and eligibility? All these things are starting to become like active topics, like machine learning week and ODSC and so on. I think that's good. I think we're beginning to see that you know, we had this huge expansion in the profession, and now we're beginning to see it sort of professionalize itself. I think that's uh, that's good too. Yeah. And there's a lot more data, obviously. So yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can predict things you couldn't afford to predict. Yeah, I think there's uh, obviously, like you mentioned, there's a traditional shift from, you know, the IT folks doing the analytics where now it's completely more professionalized. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it totally makes sense. Okay. And before I take uh, another question, obviously, Mike says fantastic answer, James. Uh, never thought of overconfidence. It's about the question that he uh, raised mm -hmm. earlier. Very interesting. Thank you. Okay, uh, since we are talking about analytics, I have a quick question and then I'll quickly jump on to a question from Christine. Um, so if, uh, how do you think, uh, you know, advanced analytics and AI help an organization in making business decision? Like how right. does that work? So what, what, we, what we tend to do, I'll I tell you how we, how we approach the problem. Right? We'll, we'll sit down with yeah. a group of business owners, and we'll, we'll model out their decision. We're big believers right. in, in decision modeling uh, yeah, exactly. it's a well-established approach for like breaking down a problem into lots of pieces. And then having got a model of how they make the decision today or how they you know, ought to make the decision today uh, and captured that framework, we'll, we'll play this game with them. We call it the if-only game. And we say, well, fill in the blanks in the following sentence. If only I knew blank, I would decide differently. And they say things like, well, if only I knew who was a retention risk. If only I knew who was going to make money for me if I kept them. If only I knew who was lying about that identity. If only I knew um, who was actually going to need more medical treatment than their doctor suspects. Right? And they ask these kind of questions. These are the kinds of things that, that I worry about that I don't know that would impact my decision. And then we go, okay, so then we ask the analytics team, well, okay, can you, do you think you have a data set or access to data that might let you predict any of those things? And often they'll go, well, not that one, but that one we could probably do. Right, we've got that data somewhere, and we got this. Maybe we can predict that. And you start getting these discussions going, and then you can say, "Well, how accurate would it have to be to use it?" Right. Because you know what the decision making is. They've just said they will change the decision making. They've committed essentially to deploying the model if you build one. Um, and then you got to ask, "Well, how accurate does it have to be?" And what's interesting about this process is that we were joking before the show, right? If you ask people, "Hey, I'm going to build a model for you. How accurate will it have to be for you to use it?" People say 95% or 99%. It's always one of the two. If you ever hear that, stop. Because that means you don't understand their business problem well enough to proceed, right? And when we ask this question, we get much more nuanced answers because mm -hmm. there's a lot more context for the model and its role right. is clear. And it's clear what it's not going to do. 
And then in those circumstances, we have one month where the business owner said, well, better than 50-50. And the analytics team fell off their collective chair because they had assumed it had to be 85%, 95% accurate, right? And they, they said, say that again. And she said, yeah, as long as it's like a good sniff test, you know, 60-40 maybe, yeah, better than 50-50. And they, they, they really didn't believe it. They made her say it again while they recorded her so that they would have evidence that she had really said this. <laughs> but for her, she was just like, look at the model. In the context of that decision that we just modeled, I don't need that prediction to be all that accurate to be helpful. Very different conversation. So that's how it helps you. You get an understanding of the decision making, then you can start to say, how could I improve this decision making? And then you're pulling the analytics and the machine learning into that decision-making context. You're not trying to push it in. Say, hey, look, I've got this bright, shiny new analytic. You should totally use it, Rabbit. It will improve your decision-making. Mm. Yeah. Is it 99% accurate? Well, no, but okay, then here. Exactly. It totally makes sense. Yeah. So, okay, uh, quick question from Christine here. It seems there is a need uh, to better mm -hmm. understand the perspective of the stakeholders when communicating technical solutions, definitely. What is one thing that data analysts might do do to better communicate results to people who might be reluctant to listen. Right. So I think it's two things. Um, and, and I teach a class that, that, that sort of think about how to use the crisp DM framework, the sort of classic data mining framework. Um, mm -hmm. and, and there's two changes, two places in the in the life cycle where as data analysts you really have to change your, your mindset. The first is at the beginning. Uh, when you're trying to capture the business problem, you have to not just say what metric do they want to improve, how would they tell that they will succeed it? Right. You have to ask what decisions are we going to make differently in order to change that metric? Because if you don't understand the decision-making they're going to change, you can't get them to change it, right? So the first thing is to invest far more time upfront, understanding the decision-making your analytic is designed to improve, and in some detail. And the second thing is when you get to presenting your analytic results, you have to present them in terms of the decision. So if my, if my job is to approve claims, let's say, you know, disability claims, you have an analytic that's supposed to help me tell whether the doctor whose medical report is attached to the claim says that you have the condition you're claiming for. So if you say, hey, I've broken my leg, I need disability, does your doctor think you've broken your leg, right? Well, then um, the, the analytic results you're presenting are not how often does it actually be predicted, but how often does that help me make the right decision about the disability claim? So you have to take your analytic results and put them into that decision-making framework and then say, Here's how often you would make the decision more accurately because of the analytic. Here's how often the analytic would lead you astray. Here's the mm -hmm. value of that, right? Um, and if you can't do that, then no one's going to use your analytic because you're describing it in lift or accuracy or yeah, predictive power or any of these things. No one cares. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that does make a lot of sense. Thanks for that, James. Okay, quickly jumping on uh, to something which is uh, about decision making. Obviously, uh, is it difficult to convince organization to adopt decision, digital decisioning? What do you think? Jim? Um, in in the in the general case, yes, clearly, because not not enough of them <laughs> do. <laughs> um, exactly. Once we start talking, what we find is it, it's got easier with the folks who have, who have invested in digitizing their company. That that, that seems to be they yeah. seem to follow that logic and go, okay, I need to digitize decision making too. Um, in some industries like banking and insurance, there's a long history of digitizing our decision making, so that's not too much of a problem. Um, mm -hmm. And then the people who spend 30 days and 30 nights in the wilderness working with machine learning, they, they aren't too hard either. 
you talk to most companies that have got machine learning group going for any length of time, they've built some models, and you talk about digital decisioning, they're like, okay, this would have been, that would have been way easier than what we did. <laughs> you know, um, but it is, it's, um, yeah, so yes and no, right? It's hard to get in front of people and get them to articulate, to see how it solves their business problem. Uh, that's why we tend to use examples like make the Mayflower ship and stuff uh, to give people a model. And then say, but once you get them to that point, it's not hard to persuade them it's a good idea. Yeah, exactly. So uh, since talking, you're talking about Mayflower, obviously it brings me to an interesting topic of the day, which is uh, Mayflower autonomous ship. I've read right. so much about it uh, when IBM actually posted. And um, can you tell us something about the Mayflower autonomous ship? How How is it a greatly analogy for business? And sure. uh, uh, how, how do you use it? So yeah. Sure. So, so I, I think it's a great analogy, right? When we were reading about it, you know, when people talk about it uh, casually, they say, oh, it's this AI-powered ship, it's got this AI captain, and they talk about AI and machine learning and sensors and all these very cool, trendy things, right? And what's interesting is it does have all those things, right? And so, you know, example is you've got these sensors and a sensor that says, hey, um, you know, uh, that's a wave, that's a rock. That's, that's an oil tanker, it's going in this direction at this speed. That's a trawler, fishing trawler, it's going in that direction at that speed, right? And it, and it detects all this stuff, which is amazing and fabulous, right? Okay, great, so what? Right, it, it's, it's got to steer, right? It's got to make choices about which way to go. Well, it turns out that that's complicated. First of all, there's a whole set of regulations called the Colrex, which say if you're a ship and you're this size of ship, you're going this way, and there's a ship here going this way, and it's smaller than you, you're meant to turn this way and it's meant to turn that way, right? There's these, all these rules so that ships don't, you know, crash into each other all the time. Um, secondly, there's a whole bunch of experience that any sailor will tell you, yeah, there are rules, but like oil tankers don't turn very fast. Everyone's meant to have their radio turned on when they go into harbor, but they often don't. Um, fishing trawlers are meant to give way sometimes, but never will because they're in the middle of fishing. They don't want to lose their nets. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. And all these sort of like best practices as well, right? And so, in order to decide what to do, you have to capture these regulations and this best practice, as well as the inputs from these sensors. And so on the ship, there is a decision engine, business rules management system, managing those rules, taking those inputs from those sensors, taking the predictions made from the inputs from those sensors and saying, okay, uh, given everything that's going on, we should turn starboard 10 degrees and accelerate to you know, seven knots, right? Because, you know, and the wrap of all of this is I still have a direction. I'm still trying to sail across the Atlantic, right? So the fact that I've got to avoid this rock or the ship or whatever doesn't mean I'm not trying to sail west still. I'm still trying to do that, right? Now, as a business, you have an overall objective. You're trying to go somewhere. But then stuff happens, right? You're predicting immediate outages or problems with stock or customer demand or weather or whatever it might be. And you have to make constant decisions that stay aligned with your overall objective. You still want to sail to Plymouth. Um, from Plymouth right. to Plymouth, um, the other Plymouth, right? And then uh, secondly, you, you, uh, but you need to make all these sort of short-term decisions as you go, right? And, and for us, that was a perfect analogy. That's exactly what most businesses need to do. Right? They have an overall objective. They have a metric they're trying to maximize, but they have short-term uh, and ongoing uh, data and predictions that they have to respond to. So we were like, you know, what this lets you do is it lets you have bits of your business behave autonomously. You know, on your behalf. And you think about people always enabling customers to use mobile apps. Oh, you can submit an order on the mobile app. Well, that's great. But if your order 
approval process to commit to a delivery date involves routing that order to a person on your BPM system, having them review it, look at a bunch of spreadsheets, and then email back and say, yes, sure, we can we can meet that delivery date. Well, my mobile app experience now sucks, right? Because I submit my order, and it says, thank you for your order. We'll get back to you. Well, that's not why I wanted to use the mobile app to submit the order. <laughs> I wanted to put the mobile app in, press the big red button, and have you go, great, it'll be there on Thursday. But if you want it to be there on Thursday, that system's got to be autonomous. And that's not code that needs to go in your mobile app. That's mm -hmm. code that's got to sit in your back, back office somewhere, making a decision about that order. Can I commit now to delivering that order on the date the customer requested? And if not, when could I commit to it? Otherwise, it's not, otherwise, you know, what's the point, right? And so businesses have to have to build systems that are more autonomous. And that means they've got to make decisions. And that's why we, I like the Mayfly thing, right? So, you know, we've been we've been talking about it over a campaign over the summer where we're building a great uh, little like piece of swag a little like custom lego kit that's a mayflower um and we have these events coming up to to, to sort of help people see how the analogy managed the business-oriented one to sort of like say hey how do you take the lessons of the mayflower part of your business and then a, a technical deep dive where we're working with a bunch of the guys from ibm including one of the guys who programmed the original you know did the work on the mayflower uh, itself uh, and our CTO is a, is a yachtsman, right? Sales specific wow. stuff. So we're going to have a great sort of technical deep dive in how does all this stuff really work and stuff. So those those are, you know, we're, we're, we really think those will be uh, will be great events and be a great chance for people to get to learn uh, stuff. I mean, yeah. you, know, you have the links, right? So if people want to come to those events, yeah, they're, they're more than welcome to sign up for them. It'd be a great way to, to learn. Yeah, exactly. No, I wanted to uh, ask you about these, uh, uh, you know, events that you've just got. Right. I've also shared the link in the post above so people can have a look at it. And here we go. This, uh, you know, one of them, yeah. one of the events is this, how can AI captain, uh, how an right. AI captain can help you navigate your operational challenges. So, okay, it's happening on the 9th of September. 9th of September, yeah. And what, we, what we're, what we're going to do is we're going to use real stories, real examples that we've worked on with folks. And the form has a place where you can put a question in. So if you have a place in your business where you think, you know, I wonder if it would help me with X, go ahead and put mm -hmm. it in. Uh, and we're going to take some of those questions during the webinar and wow. explicitly talk about how digital decisioning could be used in them. Uh, and the ones we pick will win a bottle of champagne or something similar, right? Well, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I recognize that not everybody drinks champagne, but but champagne or something like that, uh, yeah, for the, for the ones we pick, right? Because we really want people to see that this applies to a huge range of problems. You know, we have people doing, you know, military planning, building valuation, uh, truck dispatch, uh, credit card account management, and uh, loan origination and, and underwriting using exactly the same set of technologies and techniques. There's a huge range of problems you can solve. So this one's about what's that range of problems and how can you solve them? That's on the night. Exactly. And then the week later is the technical. Okay, so this one's on the 9th of September, and yeah. uh, the other one is happening on... a week later for the 16th, okay. right? So the idea okay. is if you if you come to the business one and you think, gosh, that was fascinating, I should get one of my tech buddies to come to the tech one. You still got time. <laughs> so, yeah. And this one's out. This is longer. We're gonna we're gonna ask people to give us 90 minutes of their time here because there's wow. a lot of great technology in this, and we really okay. wanted to be able to like actually show how it all works. So this is going to be a series of demos from us um, and from our, our partners, our friends at IBM, uh, you know, the, the actual product team, people who build these products for a living, right? And, and really drilling into 
here's how you could really use this tool. So it's all demos, uh, you know, one after another, showing how this stuff really works. No, yeah, I'm not just going to like, you know, talk. Yeah, we'll have a little bit of. We have a couple of yachties talking at the beginning, <laughs> but after that, it's all going to be, um, yeah. Here's how this tech works. Here's how this tech works. Here's how this tech works. Here's how they fit together. Yeah, uh, that's why it's 90 minutes. We were just like, we could make it 60, but then we're just going to be like waving our hands about all this stuff, right? So it's a, it's a, technical, I, I it's a real technical detail. Yeah. yeah, I think 90 minutes would be less for such a session because there'll be so much. Of yeah, yeah, well, that's the problem, right? It's like we could probably go for hours, to be honest, but. But you still have to like, you know, you know what tech people are like. If you don't give them a deadline, they'll talk for indefinitely, right? So, <laughs> so I'm like, you know, 15 minutes each. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a lightning talk and fantastic. Exactly. But yeah, looking. Yeah, but yeah, fantastic. I'm looking forward to the session. I'll be joining in uh, for sure. So thanks for mentioning that, James. And sure. um, also, let's take a quick question from Mike here. What proportion of companies are now using AI as part of their of their decision digital decisioning? Do you suggest to put in a decision framework to make AI more effective? So, so, um, so the first thing is I, I'm a little bit of a cynic when it comes to this, right? Because my definition of this would say if you want to tell me you're using AI as part of a digital decision, what I expect you to be able to do is point at a system that's in production, that's handling real transactions. That's using uh, an algorithm as part of how it decides. It's a machine learning or AI based algorithm. And, um, you know, uh, it's delivering business results that you can prove are uh, demonstrably better. And, and that's a pretty high bar. And on that basis, not a very big proportion. <laughs> um, now, now, there are, I personally have a fairly broad definition of AI technology. I think business rules and system kind of explicit logic is a way of doing artificial intelligence. I think machine learning is another way. Optimization is a third way. Uh, these are all AI technologies. That's what the book's premise. Um, and if I take that broader definition, then almost every bank, almost every insurance company, uh, most logistics companies have some places where they're using some of these technologies. What they lack mostly is any kind of sense that is pervasive. Now, putting in um, uh, a decision framework to make AI more effective, I would say that there are two kinds of AI programs out there. There's a set of AI programs focused on what you might call interface AI, chatbots, um, text recognition, visual recognition, um, you know, interacting with the real world more easily. Those, by and large, don't need a decision framework because they're really about how you interact with your computer, right? Recognizing that you're typing something, translating stuff, that all those things um, can be done as pure AI kinds of things. There's the second set of things, which is like the, the so what kind of um, decision, right? I want to decide and make a business decision. And then absolutely our experience is that, that it's not just that you um, will be more successful if you have a decision framework, it's that so much as that you can't be successful without one. And when you listen to case studies and events, what you hear is even if they didn't explicitly do what we would tell them to do, they did it implicitly. They understood the business problem. They talked to the business people about how they made the decision. They thought about how their analytics was going to fit in that framework. So they may not have started with the decision framework, but in order to succeed, they had a decisioning framework. So yes, absolutely. If you want to do decisioning AI, that is to say you want to make business transactional decisions using AI and machine learning, then absolutely you've got to begin with the decision in mind as well. Fantastic. 
So that answers for Mike. Definitely. Great question, Mike. Uh, there's another question from Nilsin, and it's an uh, interesting mm. one. Is digital decisioning eliminating the human part of the equation? Is it good or bad? So that's an interesting question. So, um, so first of all, there's a great book called Noise that uh, Kahneman just uh, wrote. And it's about, well, how, how much noise is there in human decision making? Uh, and if you ask like people, oh, well, I've got a bunch of like commercial underwriters, they underwrite different policies and say, well, how much variation would you expect? They'll say like, I don't know, 15% perhaps. When they actually study it, they find they've got 65% variation, right? <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot more variation in human decision-making. And it turns out that a model of your decision-making is more accurate than you are. So if I take your decision-making and essentially I capture it, model it, um, and then mechanically repeat it, it does better than you do because it doesn't have bad days. It's not tired. It hasn't forgotten to drink exactly. its coffee this morning, right? Um, and then if I use more data, I can improve the accuracy, right? So um, in that sense, eliminating human decision-making can be good, right? Because humans are inconsistent. But what we find is when we build these models, we often um, find that there are still decisions in the model that we want humans to make. And so what we do is we make that explicit. So instead of saying, here's the this best guess, decide if you want to use it or not, we're like, well, uh, why might you override it? Well, if the, you know, in the dispatch example, if I know this driver has poor customer service skills, you know, just his interaction, he's a bit cranky. And this customer is a customer that we're worried about losing. Even though he's the closest driver, I don't want to send him. Okay, well, that's very hard to like automate, right? Because the automated thing is going to say, he's the closest driver, you should send him. So what you have to do is you have to put in some kind of human decision which says, Here's the top two or three drivers. Yeah, uh, is there a reason not to send the top one? Yeah, he's cranky. Okay, well, then, then, then this is the next theorist, right? So you're, you're in, engaging the human user in the decision-making and making them mm. part of it. And so I think for us, the, the problem with, um, you're not eliminating humans, number one, you're gonna integrate them in some fashion. And the second thing is that people mistake how to integrate humans with automated decisions. They think that the way you do that is the computer does its best guess and then you get to pick. And often the reverse is true. There's some key input that only you can give it. You know that rabbit's in a good mood or not in a good mood. But no, it's much harder for a computer to tell that. So go ahead and tell me, right? If the local schools are out, tell me, right? If there's, you know, if there's an air quality, yeah. There's things you might know that are gonna affect your, your business today, but it would be not impossible, but enormously difficult for the computer to and we would prefer to capture those and feed them into the algorithm. So, so we see humans becoming you know, much more integrated with their decision systems. So true. That, that's an interesting question, definitely. And uh, he does uh, mention that, yes, bad speech. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. for sure, exactly, right? So, yeah, um, I mean, I, I'm a frequent flyer, I used to be, right, back in the day. Uh, and yeah. if you talk to frequent flyers and you would say, well, if you want to get like a seat upgrade or a change of flight or something and you call the, the 800 number and you don't get it, what do you do next? And without exception, they all say, call again and speak to a different rep. <laughs> yeah, see if I can persuade that rep to do it. Yeah, and, 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 and as a company, that's nonsense. It's nonsense. Why on earth is that a good thing, right? Oh Either they should have said yes, in which case the first one should have said yes, or they should not have said yes, in which case none of them should say yes. The fact that, you know, randomly deciding to treat a frequent fire a certain way, depending on which rep they spoke to, is terrible. <laughs> it, it's just like unforgivable, yeah? So, so true. 
Okay, so uh, before we get on to our last question, uh, definitely I, uh, there's an interesting question from Aditi about uh, Mayflower Autonomous Shape. Mm -hmm. I'll definitely pick that up, but uh, it's time we announce the winner for Digital yeah. Decision. Uh, Who won the books? Yeah, we want to see the winners. Uh, winners have stayed for, with us and have entered the raffle. Let's do this. Sounds good. We have 19 entries, which is not bad at all. Uh, for those who are joining in right now, they can mention hashtag James book. We'll be announcing the second winner as well right now. So let's do the first one. All the best to all the attendees and those who have entered the raffle. Let's see who's the first winner. Today's Asmita. Asmita, congratulations. Let's go and do the draw again. For one last time here. Let's see. All right, Sashank. Very well done. Right. And congratulations. So, yeah, quickly picking up um, Ashmita and uh, Sashank. Uh, congratulations on winning the book you will have digital decisioning and you'll learn more about it i'm very happy for them because obviously they get a chance to get in more depth about decision management about management about how it how it does impact the business in ai so okay fantastic i'll just quickly take the question about autonomous ship um thanks for this amazing session james quick question when we speak about mayflower autonomous ship do you think ai has actually replaced human decisioning to a certain extent wow i mean sure it's everything obviously does i mean you're trying to build an autonomous ship that's uncrewed there's no one on the ship right so um yeah but so it has at some level right the, the the decisions as to what to do at a sort of micro level the sort of micro decisions what the next little thing to do have been replaced by the ai that's running on the ship right but i mean the mayflower had a had a, a hardware failure so i had to turn back right it was still sailing it's still it's still safe it's still avoiding things it's still operating but it was going very very slowly because it had some hardware failure and rather than let it chug away across the atlantic very slowly they sent it back to the uk well that's a human interaction, right? The, the human supervision of that was like, why is it going so slowly? Okay. Oh, it's not going slowly because it's choosing to go slowly. It's going slowly because it's got a hardware problem it's adapting to. Okay. What are we going to do, right? And so there's a, there's a supervisory. So uh, I've written a, an article with a guy from London School of Business, uh, Business School, and, and he and I have been working on, you know, where's the right place for the human in the loop? Is the human in the loop? Is the human in the loop for exceptions, but not normally? Is the human sitting on top of the loop, supervising the loop in a very active way? Or is the human just saying, go that way, and then like, leaving it to its own devices, right? There's always a role for a human in an automated algorithm. The key thing is to find out what that role is, and not to mistake habit for uh, a choice. Well, that is uh, definitely uh very true and uh, interesting uh okay i don't want to miss out on this question from christine so uh, quickly taking this one as well do you think there is a need for more organizational psychology in the field of data analysis yes <laughs> many years ago when i was a young tech consultant an old gray-haired consultant probably my age now back then said to me he said james you tech people are so funny he said you think everything's a technology problem 
They're never technology problems. They are always organizational change problems. And I thought he was full of shit at the time. But in retrospect, he had a point, right? And so, yes, I absolutely do agree. I think that, um, you know, as when we work on digital decisioning systems, when we work on adopting machine learning and AI, we absolutely do try and figure out what the, you know, what are the motivations and everything else of, of the people who are going to be impacted by it? Not just the owners, but the people who have to use the system, the people who are going to be impacted by it. And is it going to help them meet their objectives? Because if it's not, then it will get resisted. Uh, so you do need that understanding. So yes, absolutely. Fantastic. And Christine is happy about it. We'll see. Does vote. <laughs> <laughs> All right. A quick question and a last question from my end. If you had one tip for people uh, to succeed with ML and AI, mm, right. what would it be? What would it be? All right. So when, when we when we talk about projects, we normally say there are three critical success factors, right? You have to really understand the business decision you are working on. You have to think about the solution as a mix of different technologies. It's not just about applying latest deep learning technique or the latest neural network or something. It's going to be a mix, a composite set of technologies that you have to mix. And then thirdly, you have to regard this as a continuous improvement exercise. You're not going to get um, all the way there in the, in, in the you know, if you're a cricket fan, you're not going to hit a six you're going to try and score yeah, runs of every ball, right? But you're not necessarily going to swing to the band. Right? You're not going to swing in baseball terms. You're not going to try and swing to the fences, right? You're going to play small ball. Right? So that, that's focus on, on continuous improvement is important. But of those three, I would say there was one thing. It's to really understand the decision-making you're trying to improve. If you don't understand what the decision is and what a good one looks like, who makes it today, how they make it, what drives them, what their motivation is. If you don't understand that stuff, you are not going to be able to improve decision-making with machine learning or AI. That's almost like by definition. If you don't begin with the end in mind, the decision in mind, then you won't get there. So if you're gonna do one thing, it would be to go say, well, I'd be absolutely willing to help you with an analytic. It would help me if I understood what decision you were trying to make with it and how you told good decisions from bad ones. Oh, that is, uh those are golden words there we go <laughs> yes thank you very much james uh, it was such a pleasure talking to you it was great okay. I thoroughly enjoyed yeah. it. uh just one last question if folks want to reach out to you which is the best place if they want to attend events where where can they reach out to you so they can find me on linkedin uh, i've been on linkedin a really long time so my url is actually slash james taylor <laughs> yeah because i was a very early linkedin user because i live in silicon valley um, so you can find me on LinkedIn, always happy to connect, uh, happy to message me there. Uh, you can also just email me. I'm, a, I'm very good on email, james at decisionmanagementsolutions.com. Fantastic. And Mike right. says it's interesting and he's going to go and get the book now. Uh, so absolutely. Okay. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and speaking as an author, you should all absolutely go do that right now. This one. <laughs> it takes a lot to write a book. It was amazing talking to you, James, and thanks everyone for joining in. Uh, I will definitely see you in the Robert Show again in the 2.0 version, James. So looking All right. forward to that. All, All right. right. Thanks very much, everyone. Thanks, uh, Rabbit. It was great to be on.